So back in September, the world witnessed something not seen in over 70 years. We witnessed a change in the British monarchy. So when Queen Elizabeth II died, her oldest son, Prince Charles, immediately became crowned King Charles III. So in America, we start hearing about kings and queens and monarchies. We're like, didn't we kind of throw that stuff off a couple hundred years ago? Sort of glassy-eyed about that. It's a bit of a mystery to us. But when we take a closer look at the role of the monarch, we find some interesting dichotomies. We find inherited titles, but no real power. We find responsibilities, but no true authority. The English poet Tennyson described England this way, Britain is a republic, one in which the monarch reigns but does not rule. And what would that be like? Be the queen and be able to make declarations of of goodwill but not have the authority to carry it out. To be the king, seeing all that is wrong in your land, all the evil, all the suffering, and to not have the power to do anything about it. Well, thankfully in our passage today, we're going to see the exact opposite. We'll see a king who rules and reigns, and we know from Matthew 28, the Great Commission, that our true king has been given all authority and all power in heaven and on earth. So what good, though, is that power and authority if the person who uses it is going to use it for ill or for good? How will this king use his power and authority? What will he say? What will he do? When Luke 4, we will see a king who speaks with authority and leaves people astonished and amazed. We will see a king with power who vanquishes evil and heals the sick. Ultimately, we'll see a king preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. So that's our main idea today. Because Jesus has authority and power with a word He rebukes evil, heals the sick, and preaches the good news. That's how our passage will break out a word of rebuke, a word of healing, and a word of purpose. I kind of want to leave that purpose there hanging for you. Why did Jesus come to earth? What's his purpose? So let's read the passage 4, 31 through 44. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, He came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her. And rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, 
And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and teaching of your word. Father, we submit to the power and authority of your word. Father, we need your Holy Spirit this morning to help us see Christ more clearly, to worship him more fully. We depend on you for this. Please help me. Bring me clarity. Help me to preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So you'll recall from last week that Jesus is is preaching from Isaiah 61. He's in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. The people, they they respond first by just marveling at at these words that are coming out of Jesus' mouth. They love it. But since Jesus can see the heart of man, he does not settle for their platitudes, but he confronts them with the truth. They need a Messiah just as much as the Gentiles. So the hometown, they respond in a rage. The irony here is that some of those who who watched Jesus grow up, those most familiar with Jesus, are the very ones who tried to murder him. So in our passage today, we see Jesus is heading north to the city of Galilee or city in Galilee. But as verse 31 states, he's also heading down because he's headed towards the coast of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Capernaum is. And he picks back up his custom of teaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath. And we see here the pattern continue. That when truth is proclaimed, there's a confrontation. So let's hear this this word of rebuke. Look at 31 with me. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority, and in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. See the pattern. Jesus speaks. Jesus teaches, and immediately we see two extreme responses. The people are astonished, because Jesus' word, it possesses authority. Evil, it's provoked because Jesus is powerful. He's holy. So I don't know what it was like in the synagogue that morning, but, but I can guess that there was some level of excitement. I mean, the people are hearing that Jesus, the, the healer, the miracle worker, has made it back to town. They're anticipating hearing a, a word from God taught with, with authority and power and clarity. There had to be some level of excitement But at some point in the middle of Jesus' sermon, a demon-possessed man starts yelling. So so were people wary of this man when he he entered the synagogue? Did did something look different about him? Make a picture, you know, Shane and and his guys, you know, where it's Ron or Nathan or one of those guys kind of on the radio. He's going, hey, you need to check out the the, the guy there in the blue sweater. He looks a little demon-y. 
<laughs> Keep your eye on him. So, so our guys would, would be all over it. I don't know what it was like there. What did his voice sound like? Did, did people around him like, lean over and say, you've got to be quiet, Jesus. What are you? Or did, did, did people hear this man speak and they shrink back in fear? What is happening here? Well, the demons recognize Jesus. Evil recognizes holy. One theologian put it this way, nothing recognizes the holy more clearly than the unholy. Nothing draws out the unclean as much as the clean. So just like cockroaches, they scurry when the light is flipped on, the demons recoil at the words of Jesus. The demon's response here gives us another stark contrast between familiarity and faith. Heard this last week. The big difference in familiarity and faith. The demons know exactly who Jesus is. But James 2.19 reminds us even the demons believe and they shudder. Knowledge about Jesus is not the same thing as worshiping him. So in this confrontation, we've got to ask, what in the world could evil possibly have to say to the Son of God? Well, this, this ha, okay, in, in 34, it's sneering, it's displeasure, it's mockery. What do you have to do with us? It means we have nothing in common. Leave me alone. Have you come to destroy us? It's, it's not a question. This is a shout of despair and defiance. We're about to see a battle here. Whether you realize it or not, this is a battle between darkness and light. This is a battle between one who takes captive and one who liberates. This is a battle between a liar and a truth teller. Last week in Nazareth, Jesus confronts self-righteousness in the human heart. This week in Capernaum, Jesus confronts evil toe-to-toe. Because you see, something, something more sinister is happening here than this demon just recognizing Jesus and, and defying him. When the demon says, Jesus of Nazareth and Holy One of God, this is a first strike in an act of war. This demon is trying to put Jesus under his power. Now, from, from fairy tales like Rumpelstiltskin all the way back to ancient Sumerian and Egyptian mythology, it's a commonly held superstition that knowledge of someone's name gave you power over them. So when this demon names Jesus, this fallen angel, he's trying to subdue and control the Son of God. So since Jesus has all power and all authority, and since the Bible is not a fairy tale, this confrontation does not end well for this demon or the demons in verse 41. So once once this demon starts screaming in the synagogue, I'm, I'm betting it gets really, really quiet. I mean, can you, can you picture Jesus staring at this man? More precisely, staring into this man. Staring at the evil that possesses this man. I don't know how, but I'm sure he had mercy in his eyes for the man and wrath for the evil. 
What does he say in verse 35? He says, Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent, come out. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out having done him no harm. Be silent, come out. Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God speaks one word of rebuke. And this demon, who knows how many more demons in verse 41, they have to obey. They are compelled to obey. Look at 41. And the demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Here is a king with all power and all authority, a king who rules and reigns over darkness, over evil. By the authority and power of Jesus, demons are silenced. Evil is vanquished. Now, if you or me were Jesus, I'll speak for me instead of you, but if I were Jesus, man, I would have been tempted here. I would have been tempted towards the world's biggest, I told you so. I would have been tempted to, to trot all these demon-possessed folks back up to Nazareth and say, they can figure out that I'm Jesus, the Son of God, and you losers can't. Thankfully, Jesus is not petty, Okay. So why does he silence them? He, he, he will not allow the greatest truth of all time to come out of the mouths of lying demons. To talk about a, a credibility problem, evil has no right to announce Jesus or taint the truth with its presence. So he says, silence, get out. So again, we're, we're still in the synagogue. The people are, I don't know if, who they're looking at or what they're thinking. But how do they respond? In verse 32, we know that they were astonished at the authority of Jesus' word. Now they are amazed. They are thunderstruck at the power of his word. And they asked the right question. Look at verse 36. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Indeed, what is this authority and power? I mean, what, what they've just seen in the synagogue, this is a brand new situation. And a lot of the, the miracles that we see in the New Testament, we also find in the Old Testament, not this one. Only Jesus and his followers, only in his power, in the authority of his name, can cast out demons. This is brand new. The people are thunderstruck. So where does this authority and power come from? It comes from who Jesus is and what he's done. I mean, the father confirmed who he is. Back in 3, 22, this is my son. I'm well pleased with him. His power comes from the Holy Spirit. 4, 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Jesus has already demonstrated his power and authority by what he's done. Think back to earlier in, in Luke 4. What's he done out in the desert? He stomped a hole in Satan. He's already, already got that foot on the neck of the serpent, defeating the devil. That was then. This is, this is now. What does this mean for us now? This confrontation. It means that I'm just preparing you. I, I, 
we should never be surprised by spiritual attack when Jesus Christ is preached. We should never be surprised that evil attacks when the gospel is proclaimed. Kent Hughes puts it like this, whenever the authority of Christ, the Son of God, is invoked in preaching or teaching, there will be a violent confrontation with the evil spirits who possess men's souls and rule and ruin their lives. Now, you may have noticed that when an unbeliever is confronted by the person of Jesus, his response may not be as dramatic as what we've just seen in, in Luke 4. But even if all you've seen is apathy from your unbelieving friend, know that that is the violence of Satan. That is still demonic influence. He causes the apathy. We know it is Satan who veils the gospel to those who are perishing. We know it is Satan who blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. It is the devil who blinds and distracts them away from the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We know this from 2 Corinthians 4. So our prayer then is that God today, his Holy Spirit, would open the eyes of our hearts for anyone who does not believe that, that the veil would be removed because the curtain has been torn in two. You now have access to the Father because of the cross. For you, believer, this epic confrontation, it means that, that every time you attempt to point yourself to Jesus, you need to prepare your heart and mind for war. When you get ready to walk into this place on a Sunday morning to hear Jesus preached, prepare your mind for war. When you're at growth group and you're, you're looking for the courage, I need to tell my brother about this pattern of sin I need to confront. I need to encourage him to submit to the authority of Christ. Prepare your heart for war. When you're in Bible study with a, with a sister and you're saying, I, I don't want her to be mad, but I need to tell her that she's got to rest in the power of the Lord. He has this. Prepare your mind for war. When you open scripture, you know this. It's, it's almost like a principle that you're ready to, to open the word and, and your phone buzzes. A child comes in. There's, there's, something happens when you're ready to spend time thinking about Christ. Be prepared for battle. Demons cannot possess Christians. But I'm convinced that one of the easiest ways, the clearest path for demonic influence on a Christian is when we as believers forget or minimize the power and the authority of Jesus Christ in our lives. When we start relying on anything else that is an open door. How do we prepare for battle? We remember this. Saints, the king of glory has won you to himself at the cost of his own life. You no longer serve the prince of the power of the air. You serve the king of kings. The accuser has nothing to say. He has no power over you. The adversary has no authority over you. You are under the immeasurably kind rule of the Lord of Lords, Jesus, 
whose name is far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion. This is the king you serve. Jesus, the one whose name is above every name that is named. Not only now in this age, but also in the one to come. He has you and he will keep you. Nothing can snatch you from the king's right hand. Lord, help us to remember this. Help us to rest in this. Like it, it sounds odd to say it, but we're battling to rest in a truth. <sighs> so look at, look at 37. This should be no surprise. <laughs> and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So based on what these people have witnessed, the power and authority of the word, this, this word of, of rebuke to evil, no wonder that word is, is spreading about who Jesus is. No wonder it's spreading about who Jesus is now, 2,000 years later. So as we think about this, this word, look at the, the word of healing and what comes next. 38, and he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. So Simon, this is Simon Peter. Jesus is staying at his future disciples' house as he teaches in Capernaum. Peter's mother-in-law, she's sick, and naturally the family is concerned. I mean, I, I don't know about at your house, but at our house, when mama's sick, uh, things feel kind of off. Things start to get missed. Things don't get done. There, there, there's something happening here that's, that's not right. So you get that, that vibe from, from Peter's mother-in-law that she's strong, that she's a caretaker. We see that because once she's healed, she immediately gets up and starts taking care of everybody. So you've got to appreciate Luke here, the physician, right? He's, he's precise in his attention to detail. He describes Peter's mother-in-law with precise medical language. She's suffering with an illness, and it's a high fever. Now, I, I don't think this is like the man flu, okay? For those of you that are familiar with that, you, you guys, it's around 99.5, and we're like, where's my house shoes? I need a blanket. Hot chocolate would be amazing. It's kind of an ongoing debate in, in our house. I can show the, the, look, honey, right here, it says 99.2, and Heather's like, that's not a fever. I'm like, it, how can it not be a fever? Like anything above 98.6 is a fever, right? It's not a fever. So the debate rages. She has much more credibility. So the point is, I think this fever is serious, but it's not life-threatening. It's serious, but not life-threatening. Peter's mother-in-law is, is simply suffering. So, so the family appeals to Jesus on her behalf. In verse 39, Jesus stands over her and rebukes the fever. So that's the same word. We keep hearing this rebuke, word of rebuke. He uses it to silence demons. He uses it to heal Peter's mother-in-law. I don't know if, if the illness was demonically influenced. I have no idea. But what I do know is it was just a word. Jesus exerts his authority and his power over this illness. She's healed so thoroughly, so completely, she immediately gets up and starts serving everyone. So sometimes we, we hear this story and the application goes like this. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. 
So out of gratitude, she wastes no time. She gets up. She begins to serve Jesus immediately. So, so should we. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. I appreciate that. It just doesn't go far enough. There's more happening here. I want you to see the family appeals to Jesus on her behalf. Think about that. Of course, we go to the Lord with the big things. We take him to the, the huge things, maybe that moment of crisis. But what about the small? If your mom has a life-threatening illness, pray to Jesus for her. And if your mom has a headache, pray to Jesus for her. Bring everything to Jesus, big and small. Bring him lost family members. Bring him lost keys and everything in between. Take him the small stuff. I mean, why don't we do this? I mean, do we think we're going to bother Jesus with just bringing him the small thing? This passage corrects our thinking. This passage corrects us, cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7, all of your anxieties. Now, I'm not saying that Peter directly learned that lesson here, but I would not rule it out. So look at how Jesus responds when the family appeals to him. Why does Jesus heal her? Because he's kind. Why does Jesus heal her? Because Peter is his friend. Jesus heals her because he has integrity. What we're seeing here is this king, this savior, has the same power and authority, the same temperament in the synagogue as he does in your home. He has integrity. He can be trusted personally and publicly. That's good news for us. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in verse 40, and when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. The sun is setting. The Sabbath is over. According to the law, the people can move about freely now. And they're flocking to Jesus from all over Galilee. They want to be healed. They want to be delivered from evil. So again, look at the wording in 40. All of those who had any who were sick, he laid his hands on everyone and healed them. All, any, everyone. This is massive. This is a large-scale public healing. So there's a picture of this one night in Capernaum. There's hundreds of people being healed. Everywhere you look, misery is turning to joy. Brokenness being made whole. Imagine parents with babies who didn't know if their child would survive. They bring him to Jesus, and tonight they get to lay him down. And they don't have to get up multiple times in the night to go stare at their son and see if he's going to be breathing. Imagine the, the sheer joy and restored dignity as the paralyzed man can now walk home. He can now eat without being fed. He can now clean himself without being subject to the humility of someone else doing that for him. 
Picture the wonder of the, of the leper made clean as she's able to rejoin her community. For years, just watching from the outside life and having no part of it until tonight. <laughs> Imagine the, the shock of a blind teenager who sees her family and friends for the very first time. So this verse, it says, sick with various diseases. So we're talking afflictions that are life-threatening all the way to just mildly uncomfortable. And what does Jesus do? He heals every single one of them. As the people walk home arm in arm, what are they talking about? What, what plans are they making as they walk home whole that up until this night, the only plans were misery? This night, they drift off to sleep with no rattling coughs, no moans of misery, no silent cries of despair, one night of complete physical rest and peace on earth. So what is the ultimate point of these miracles? And not miracles in the casual sense that, that the word might be thrown around, but miracles like this that we just witnessed Miracles defined as, as an extraordinary work that occurs in the external, observable world against the laws of nature by the immediate power of God, a work that only God can do. Why did he do it? We can say with certainty that these miracles prove that Jesus is the Son of God. His power, his authority is vindicated. It is validated on earth as it is in heaven we clearly see that his cosmic rule is, is true as, as the horrible effects of the curse are temporarily reversed. But perhaps even as important as these cosmic implications, we're meant to see something else, something personal. The, these miracles reveal the character of Jesus, the Savior that you worship this morning. We are seeing from God's word what he's like. With his power, we also see tenderness, and that's good. With his authority, we also see compassion. So think about it. Think, think about what he could have done but did not do as Hannah pointed out this morning, with, with a word, with one word. He could have healed everyone that came to him. He could have turned around, gone back to the house, and gotten a solid night's sleep. That's what he could have done, but that's not what happens. How does he heal them all? Verse 40, laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. So even, keep both things happening in your mind at the same time, even in this massive cosmic, rub it in the face of powers, principalities, and spiritual forces of evil, this public display of healing. Our Savior is intimate, hands-on with each person, one by one, seeing each individual. Wouldn't you love to know what words were spoken? What did he say? Because he knows each one of them. Jesus is patient. He is kind. He is intentional. This is the king that we worship. So I would ask you this morning, let the character of our king comfort your heart. Maybe you, you desire 
healing. And that has not happened. That does not change his character and what will come one day. We will see that next. So, so Jesus heals all those who came to him throughout the night. According to verse 42, when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, but the people sought him. They came to him and they would have kept him from leaving them. So here we are. Even though Jesus has healed hundreds of people through the night, they keep coming and looking for him. This language in verse 42 of of seeking Jesus to keep him from leaving, this is not just pleading. This is not needy. This is people seeking control. They, the people, they want to keep Jesus for themselves. The people have experienced one night of compassion and mercy, and their first response, mine, mine. They don't want to share this mercy. They want to keep it. We know this tendency in our own hearts. We have to resist it by the power of the Holy Spirit. This tendency shows up when, for the first time, you were in a biblical community, you were in a growth group, and you're like, I love this. I love these people. They're real. And it comes time to branch. I don't want to. I don't want to give this up. It, it feels this way when it comes time to plant a church. I love these people. I, I don't want to give this up. We have to resist that selfishness. By the power of the Spirit, there is something bigger happening here. So even, even as we learn what not to do from the people of Capernaum, we can absolutely sympathize with them. And no, no more sickness, no more pain, no more demonic influence. Jesus, what could possibly be more important than this? What could possibly be a greater purpose for you than rebuking evil and, and healing the sick? Well, Jesus answers in verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. We should always pay attention. When Jesus tells us what he must do, we should listen carefully when he tells us his purpose for coming to earth. In Luke 5, he, Jesus tells us that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Luke 19, he says he came to seek and save the lost. Here in Luke 4, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. I was sent for this purpose. The kingdom of God can be defined as, as Jesus' purpose to save sinners and his presence of power and authority on earth. So as Jesus is preaching the kingdom, he becomes the first Christ-centered preaching that there's been. So we see in, in Luke 17 that the Pharisees, they asked Jesus when the kingdom of God is coming. And Jesus says, behold, the kingdom is right in front of you. The king is standing right here. So with this one night of healing and freedom from evil, we are seeing just a foretaste of the eternal kingdom of God. There will be a day when every tear is, is wiped and dried. Every illness, every sickness, every sadness redeemed. In order to bring that about, Jesus has a mission to complete. 
He has words to speak. He has an atonement to make by his blood on a cross on a hill outside of the gates of Jerusalem. So Luke tells us in verse 44, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And he makes a point, Luke makes a point to finish the narrative telling us where Jesus is and what he's doing is in Judea. So that means that despite the protest of the people of Capernaum in the region of Galilee, Jesus leaves. Galilee's up north, Samaria's in the middle, Judea's down south. Jesus leaves to go talk to people about the kingdom of God, to share the good news to people who haven't heard it yet. Jesus sees the big picture. He knows why he was sent. He will not be deterred from what he must do. So if the purpose of Jesus is to spread the good news, to seek and save the lost, how does he go about it? Simply put, he he uses words. He teaches. He preaches. I mean, you could describe the ministry of Jesus Christ as a ministry of the Word made flesh who proclaims the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke's been setting us up to see this. How is the passage today bookended? What's it start with? It starts with teaching. How does it end? It ends with preaching. Verse 35 and 41, how did Jesus silence the demons? With a word. How did Jesus heal Peter's mother-in-law? With a word. At the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus defeats the devil. How? With the word of God. Jesus exposes the heart of men in Nazareth. How? With the word of God. What does this mean for us? For the church, it means her power and her authority reach only as far as her fidelity to the word of God. What we're doing seeks to have meaning and in actuality does damage if we are not putting ourselves under the power and the authority of God's word. The church remains a pillar and a buttress of truth only insofar as she submits to the power and authority of God's word. So I'd ask you, please pray for this church, pray for us. I don't want to take it for granted that we love God's word. Pray for the church plant. Pray for the spirit to raise up men and women who love God's word. Pray for the spirit to to raise up women and men who are Titus toing each other, okay, discipling each other in God's word. Families who are Deuteronomy sixing each other, raising up their family in God's word. Pray for that. Pray that that the Father will give courage and resolve to his people to remain as committed to his word as he is committed to his church. There's something to shoot for. His commitment is unfailing. Ours is shaky sometimes, but we can rest in Christ here. Rest in his word. Pray that we would be strengthened to love it. How about personally? I want you to think of the contrast here between the demons and the disciples. The demons are forbidden to speak. Be silent. Come out of him. As disciples, we must speak. We have to speak. Remember that that all authority in heaven and on earth is given to Jesus. What does he do with that authority, the Great Commission? What does he say? He says, go. Go. 
Go and make disciples of all the nations, knowing that Jesus promises to be with us always to the end of the age. As followers of Jesus, we must be about our king's business. We've got to be speaking of who he is and what he's done so we can all say with Paul, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So is this an either or mission though? Does this mean that we ignore the suffering of people around us? Well, by no means. We, we see Jesus, he's, he's bookending the power and the authority of word with living out the integrity of the word. It's only because of the word and the presence of the spirit that we have any desire to alleviate suffering around us. And it's, it's because of the spirit and the word that we want to do that without there being recognition to us but rather to Jesus. At the same time, our priority must be the same as our king. We must share the truth of the good news. And I, I confess my cynicism here. I, I need the Spirit to help me. But just because we know that human nature is to take advantage of compassion doesn't mean we withhold it nor does it mean we settle for merely showing compassion without sharing Jesus. It's a both and. When you help someone, when you give to someone, tell them why. You give because God first gave to you in Christ and never stops giving to you in Christ. You help others because in Christ, God always helps you. Tell them why. So 2,000 years later, what's changed about the power and authority of God's word? The good news is absolutely nothing. The word of God still has authority. The word of God still has power. Why? Because every single God-breathed letter of it, every jot, every tittle is about the person Obedient life, sacrificial death, and triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So what does that mean for us? It means that you are not the people of Capernaum left wanting you are not left as orphans. Why? Because you do not worship a monarch who merely reigns but does not rule. You worship a king with all power and all authority. Again, he's not left you as orphans. He has united himself to you through his spirit. He has given you his body, the church, he has given you this word of grace that according to Acts 20, verse 32, is able to build you up and give to you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, all those set apart for Christ. So when this active, living, two-edged sword is preached, Jesus Christ is still piercing hearts. He's still defeating evil. He's still setting captives free. When this gospel is taught, it's still the power of salvation to everyone who believes. When this word is spoken, 
The purposes of God are still being accomplished and no power of hell can stand against it. All glory be to God. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we, we thank you for the privilege of sitting under your word. Father, I pray that it would be by your spirit that you, you help us remember and rest in the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would help us joyfully submit to the power and authority of your word, which so clearly shows us who you are. Powerful and tender, all authority and compassion. Father, we need your help to believe it because it's such good news. So please help us now. Help us rejoice and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.